I suppose if you want to pick a verse or a chapter to open up to, you could open up to John 15 or 16. Uh, We're launching out of Galatians chapter 5 like we have every week, talking about the fruit of the Spirit and then talking about the nature of God coming from that. Uh, But it'll be a while before we get to the book of John. But we do have uh, a lot to cover and we'll be a little bit all over the place. So I'm going to start by reading Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23, the, 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 the kind of launching point for every one of these sermons as we talk about uh, the, the fruit of the Spirit. So let's just read this, Galatians 5, 22, 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. So as I told you this morning, we are talking about joy. And we're going to focus, focus in on this one. And you would think talking about joy is a pretty straightforward uh, topic. It is, uh, in, in one form or another, the most commanded, the most often given command in all of Scripture. In one form or another. It may, it may sound like be thankful, uh, or it may sound like uh, rejoice, Uh, Or it may sound like have joy. It it could be in in different things, but in in some form or fashion, the command to be happy, to be joyful, is the most frequently given command in all of Scripture. And so you would think something like joy that we all can kind of wrap our mind around in some level would be a, a pretty straightforward sermon to prepare for for a pastor. But here's the thing. Uh, I found this sermon particularly challenging to prepare for, and, and uh, he, here's why. I find myself uh, as a pastor up here in a, a position trying to teach the truths of the Bible, and that these truths, although right and good and, uh, and perfect, these truths oftentimes are not popular, right? Right? oftentimes are not things that we naturally kind of think about or naturally uh, pursue. In in fact, if you read through Galatians chapter 5, that whole chapter is about the war between the flesh and the spirit and how our flesh pursues these other things, but the spirit wants us to pursue something else. That's the the whole chapter. That's the impetus for the whole chapter in Galatians chapter 5. Be free in the spirit. The flesh will rob you of that freedom, so pursue all these other things. So me as a pastor, oftentimes what I'm trying to do when I get up here is to implore you, to plead with you, to beg you, to teach you, to do whatever I can to get you to stop pursuing the things you should not pursue and instead pursue the things that the scriptures lay out for us. That is, in a nutshell, my job almost every Sunday. They they are the things that on our own, by our very own nature, we don't uh, pursue. So whatever I can do within scriptural bounds, whatever I can do to motivate you to pursue those things is what I want to be able uh, to do. I'm doing all that I can. And so this morning we're talking about uh, the, the fruit of joy. And here's the thing. I don't need to convince you to want joy. I don't need to get up here and say, rejoice because you... You don't want to be joyful, so let me just tell you to rejoice. Now, I, I, I would need to get up here and say, be patient, because I know you, you in your flesh, you don't want to be patient. Be gentle, because I know you in your flesh, you, you don't want to be gentle. Be kind, because I know in your flesh, you don't always want to be kind. But everyone wants joy. 
So how do I get up here and, 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 and preach a sermon now? Everyone wants joy. I don't have to convince you of that. Listen to this quote. It's one of my favorite quotes from uh, Blaise Pascal. If you know him, he's a theologian. He's a mathematician. You may have heard about him in math class. Philosopher, does all kinds of stuff. Listen to this quote from him. He says, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object, towards happiness. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. The point that Pascal is making here is that you will, everything you do in your life, everything you do is geared towards one end, happiness. It's geared towards making you happy. Now, sometimes you will do things that you know will make you unhappy because you know in the end it produces a greater happiness, right? This is why we exercise. This is why we, uh, this is why we, we watch what we eat. You know, you, you, this is why, we, uh, why we, we go to school even though we may not like school. This is why we do all kinds of things. Uh, even as, as Pascal says, even the worst things that we know bring us the most harm, we do those because we think on some level it will make us happy. And this lies our paradox. If everything we do leads to us wanting to be happy, or as, every, as Pascal says, everything is toward that end, then why does the Bible need to tell us over and over and over again to rejoice? Why does it need to tell us that? In theory, I should be able to walk up here and say, be joyful. Amen. Y'all are dismissed. Right? If that's what you want, I should be able to walk up here and say, be happy. And we're done. Because I don't have to implore you for that. I don't have to motivate you towards that. You are self-motivated towards happiness, towards joy. I don't have to convince you of that. It would, be, it would be like if you were to put like a medium-rare filet or ribeye right here in front of me. You do not have to motivate me to eat that. I will eat that with all my own motivation. You don't have to convince me of that, right? I already want that. It's intrinsic in me. I want to be able to eat that. I, it, it's, it's simple for me to pursue that. So it should be with joy. If anything, I should have to convince you to be sad or to be serious. The Bible says that too, be sober-minded. But if anything, I should have to convince you to want to be miserable. But you know that I don't have to convince you of that. We are skilled practitioners at making ourselves miserable. We are skilled at finding things that make us sad. Most of us can, can convince ourselves of how terrible we have it all on our own. We don't need help with that. So this morning, my goal is to show you why the scriptures will push us to rejoice, why the Bible needs to tell us over and over and over again to rejoice. And I'm going to do that by talking about the source of our joy as well as its practice. And I'm going to tell you, it feels a little bit daunting, but I think God has some good things here for us this morning. 
So right off the top, we need to acknowledge a couple of things. You've probably already heard me uh, saying this. I'm going to use the terms happiness and joy interchangeably. Now, what Chandis just said up here a few minutes ago is, is a common way of talking about happiness and joy. And the sentiment is absolutely correct, talking about how happiness is kind of built on circumstance. Joy is something that is deeper, that, that doesn't go away. That, that, that sentiment is absolutely true, and we'll, we'll talk about that just a little bit. Um, but but vocabulary-wise, and, and I just want to follow what Scripture's doing in vocabulary uh, with, with, with what the scripture does, the way it uses words, happiness and joy are interchangeable. I make no distinction in those two things. Yes, one, uh, yes, we can talk about the difference between circumstance versus an abiding joy, and we have in a lot of popular teaching labeled one of those happiness and one of those joy, but the Bible doesn't use that label. Um, so I'll use those interchangeably. We could also use the word blessed. We could also use, we could use a lot of different words in place of that. But the Bible looks at all those things as essentially the same thing. So don't, don't get lost whenever I use those uh, the, the same way. But I think that's what, um, what the Bible does. And I think what, what we're trying to do whenever we make that distinction between happiness and joy often is we're, we're trying to somehow articulate what we all feel on some level. Well, where we can, we can be in a place where we hurt and we grieve and we mourn, and yet we remain glad. And that's good. That's good. That, that's a good distinction for us to be able to make. But vocabulary-wise, I just want to use the same, uh, the same terms uh, interchangeably. The other thing I want to acknowledge right up front, and I, I want to make sure that I make this clear, is that I am keenly aware that preaching a sermon on joy and happiness can very quickly bring the exact opposite to some of you. I'm very aware of this. Some of you desperately want to be happy. And then when you get a preacher stand up here and tell you that the Bible says you should be happy, then that just makes you more unhappy. And that is not my goal this morning. I feel the weight of that. There is no doubt a darkness that can settle in on our hearts that makes happiness seem like a, a kind of fog, a mist that we can never get our hands around. If that's you this morning, please know that my heart is with you and that I am terribly aware of the ability that I have in this sermon to crush you with the weight of happiness. But that is not at all my intention. And I have prayed deeply this morning that this message would be a balm to your soul instead of a boulder that crushes you. And I hope that you can hear those words in the words of Scripture this morning. Whenever the Bible says rejoice, it is not a condemnation, but an invitation. And I hope you can hear that even in midst of whatever darkness may be settling in on you this morning. So I want to make a few things clear as we get started. Joy is something we have to fight for. Even though we desperately want it and everything we do is built to pursue it, we still must fight for it. When Paul is addressing fights and quarrels in the church at Philippi, he writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. 
He's talking about these members that are fighting with each other. And he's like, y'all, stop fighting with each other. Just rejoice in the Lord. He's, he's, he's almost exasperated as he says that. But he knows he has to tell them, stop fighting and rejoice. When David is in the depths of despair, he pleads with himself. He says in Psalm 43, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. And I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He's fighting even with himself on this one. We have to fight for joy. So friend, if you are struggling to find joy this morning, you are not alone. There are all kinds of things that can rob us of our joy. Let me just lay out a few of them. Grief mourning, genetics, brain chemistry, life circumstances, the loss of a sports team, the weather, sleep, sin, lack of exercise, financial stress, loud noises. All of those things can rob you of joy on some level. Now, depending on the hierarchy of where those things are in your life, it may rob you of more joy than others. But all of those things can play into effect. If you don't sleep for a couple of days, you're going to be a bad person to be around. You are not going to be joyful, right? You're going to be... If you don't eat by about 1.30 this afternoon, you're going to be hangry, right? So you're not going to be a joyful person to be around, right? All of those things can play into this. This is real life. We're not, I'm not here to talk about platitudes of just joy floating around in the sky, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how you're going to smile at 3 o'clock this afternoon, right? That's what we want to talk about. So all of those things play into our happiness. Some of those things require a doctor. Some of them require self-discipline. Some of them might require repentance. But all of them can affect happiness. So if all these things play a role, then again, the question has to be asked, why does the Bible command us to rejoice when a lot of those things I listed and a thousand others I didn't are fully out of our control in the first place? I'm not in charge of my brain chemistry. I can't dictate any more than anybody else in here. doesn't matter how many times I change where I'm sitting or how many times I change shirts in the middle of a football game. I don't dictate whether or not Tennessee is going to win that football game, right? I'm in, I have no control over that. So if, if, I, if I have no control over the, that, then why does the Bible then tell me to have joy? Why does the Bible tell me to rejoice? And so I want to zero in on uh, a couple of these times where the Bible says that, and a couple of times where the Bible um, adamantly commands us to be joyful. And I believe that the, the, the first reason the Bible commands us to be joyful is because it reflects the nature of and the gifts of God. Because God is a God of joy. The opening pages of Scripture, we see where uh, God is creating day after day after day. And what he says in those opening chapters of the book of Genesis is that he creates something and it is good. He creates something and it is good. He creates something and it is good. And, and, and the words there where it talks about something being good, this is not just a judgment of okay, that's good. This is a, an exaltation over the creation saying, this is good. God is happy that it is good. And then whenever he gets to the, the, the climax of creation, he creates man and woman. He says, this is very good. He says, this is very good. 
He has joy within himself over what he has created. The book of Zephaniah, if you had the, the Bible bingo and you, you had Zephaniah on your bingo card, you may have just won. Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness, and he will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. He will rejoice. He has joy. And he will do so, and, and he will exult over watching those that he has redeemed and the work that he has done. He will rejoice because he has joy. In Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5, he says, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. When you get to see a couple getting married, you, you see the joy that is in their eyes, the joy that is in their hearts. That same joy that exists within the groom exists within God as he looks over his church and his creation. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. He writes, Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for the for this day is holy to our Lord. And then he says, And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord. For the longest time, what I thought that meant is the joy that God gives you. And it does mean that. But the joy that God gives you is of God. It is His to give. He owns it. He is it. It is him and he gives it to you. The joy of the Lord is your strength. He is giving it to us because it is him. Listen to this from 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed, remember that word there, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is, has immortality and who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So that word there where it says blessed and only sovereign, it's the same word that's translated elsewhere as happy. It's the same word that's translated elsewhere as joyful. So another, another appropriate translation would be uh, in the midst of all these serious attributes of God being sovereign, king of kings, lord of lords, he's happy. He's happy. Who is the happy and only sovereign? Who is the joyful and only sovereign? It is God, the King of kings. And we see that He is happy. He is joyful. Or perhaps think of it another way with me. Think, think of it a, a different way. Let's come about this in, in, a, in a side door a little bit. If God is indeed joyful or happy, then He is infinitely so. We talked about this with the simplicity of God. What God is, God is all the way, all the time. He is infinitely happy. He's not just kind of, sort of happy. It's not how God works. Listen to how Dallas Willard 
describes this in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. He says this, We should, to begin with, think that God leads a very interesting life and that he is full of joy. Undoubtedly, he is the most joyous being in the universe. The abundance of his love and generosity is inseparable from his infinite joy. All of the good and beautiful things from which we occasionally drink tiny droplets of soul-exhilarating joy, God continuously experiences in all their breadth and depth and richness. That is a beautiful idea. What he's getting at is this. Y'all ever been to the aquarium in Gatlinburg? Anybody, like show of hands, been to the aquarium in Gatlinburg, right? All right. Wow, that's a lot of people. Y'all been to the aquarium like in Chattanooga? Y- y'all been in there? That's a lot of people too. All right, so y'all have been to the aquariums. You, you, you know they got all this stuff. They got all kinds of different things. Though, I don't like fish. I don't really care. But I like going to those aquariums. Those are, that's kind of fun to go to those aquariums. Why is that fun? Because you get to go and you, you get to it, it, it look at these, these different things, these cool things, and the wide variety of things that you see there. You see sharks, you see alligators, you see funny-looking sharks with, like, saws on the end of their nose, sharks that look like hammers. You get to see uh, turtles. You get to see, uh, you get to see uh, jellyfish. You get to see seahorses. You get to see the really creepy octopus. Like, you get to see all of that kind of stuff. And... You get to see that in a tiny little cage, in one little spot, and you get to be amazed by that. And you, you get to experience some measure, some tiny little droplet of joy out of that. God, on the other hand, can see the depths of the ocean right now. And he can see every fish swimming around, uh, you know, out there on the, on the coast that people are snorkeling just to see a few of them. He can see every sea turtle and every shark and every whale and all these other things that we've not even discovered yet. He can see them all in this moment. And he can experience all of that. We experience a tiny droplet of joy in the aquarium, but God, just in the oceans, can experience more than we will ever know. The view that we get from climbing Lacan is amazing. God never stops seeing that view. He created that view. And he's also got the view from Everest at the same time. The view that the Apollo astronauts had as they went to the moon and they looked back and saw the earth for the first time and their breath was taken away and they wept as they saw the beauty of the earth. God has seen that view since the day he created it. And he can tell you what Mars looks like that we have not seen with human eyes up close yet. And he can tell you what a billion other galaxies look like. And he sees that view at all times. Those things bring us some measure of joy. God is always experiencing those things. And I believe that all of those things bring God some measure of joy, as is evidence from Genesis 1 and 2. All of it is joyful. But here's the thing that I think is really cool about that. He shares that joy with us. He shares that joy with his creation. Now, we'll never see all the things that God sees. But we do get to see some piece of that. And when we see some piece of that, God created us in such a way that when I stand on top of a mountain and I see the vista that is out before me, or when I wake up and I see the sunrise over the ocean and I see the vastness of the ocean, God has created me in such a way that that brings me joy. Have you ever thought about that? 
He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to create me to experience joy at, the, at, the, at, at watching a sunrise. He didn't have to create me to experience joy whenever I, 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 get, to, I, I get to go to an aquarium or whenever I get to see the, the ocean or a, a mountaintop. He didn't have to create me to experience joy, but he did. He did. And this is true for all of us. This is a common grace to his creation, that we experience joy. He didn't have to make me to recognize beauty and the joy that I received from that, but he did. Let me ask you this. Have you ever thanked God for the way food tastes? Have you ever thanked him for it? You should. A good bowl of ice cream, a well-cooked steak, a bowl of shrimp and grits, a hot cup of coffee. Have you ever said, God, thank you for the way that, not just for providing it for me that I would be nourished, but that I can drink this cup of coffee and something happens in my brain where these endorphins get released and and, and I get some measure of happiness because I tasted some coffee and because I had a bowl of ice cream. He did not have to create you to enjoy food. He could have just made it the same way that, that, that fuel works in a car. Your car does not enjoy the gas, right? But you enjoy the food that you eat, depending on how good a cook you are. But you enjoy the food, right? You enjoy these things whenever God created you so that your brain chemistry works in such a way that you would enjoy something as simple as a meal. There was no need for that. He did not have to do that. He could have made food tasteless and boring and fuel for our bodies. On and on we could go. He made woman and man so that we could bring each other joy. You hear that in Adam's poem to Eve after she is created. You see that on the faces of brides and grooms. He didn't have to do that, but he did. I've got to be honest with you. I'm tired of very well-meaning preachers that teach that we can only find joy in spiritual things. That is nonsense. There is joy all around us. And we glorify God when we celebrate in it and receive it as a good gift to us. I am absolutely convinced that God designed me to enjoy a Krispy Kreme donut. And I... (laughs) And I am absolutely convinced that whenever I enjoy that in a way that reflects back on Him, that is a worshipful thing towards God. When I eat a dozen, it's when we have a problem, right? That's when it goes a little too far. Friends, part of the reason that we aren't as happy as we should be as Christians is because we've convinced ourselves that we shouldn't be. That somehow joy is, is located in this other world place. Somehow it's located in this thing where we just have to kind of imagine that it exists. That is a lie from the enemy who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. God created us to experience joy because we are made in his image. And the joy that we can experience in other things is meant to make us long for something greater. That joy is not meant to terminate on itself. 
It's not meant to end with that bite of food. It's not meant to end with that, that, that vista over the ocean. It's not meant to end with that mountaintop view. It's not meant to end there. It's meant to prompt us to something even more, to say, if we can have joy from something like this, imagine the greater joy that God calls us to that's an even greater, deeper, more profound joy. Listen to another one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That quote has shaped my life. I've shared it here many, many times. I love that quote because it is a constant reminder to me where the emphasis needs to be. The trouble with my ability to enjoy things is what my flesh then does with that. It corrupts the things that God gives us to to enjoy. It corrupts the things that it gives us and it turns it into something sinister. It takes the the taste of a donut and turns it into gluttony when I have to have the whole dozen. It takes the deep love for a girlfriend and turns it into a jealous rage of abuse. It takes the joy of creation and it turns that creation into, instead of something that points us to God, something that we worship in and of itself. Anything we enjoy can become something that we worship very easily. And when that happens, that's when we get in trouble. Experiencing joy in the gifts God gave us is not the problem. It's the depth and the breadth of that joy. When we become obsessed to the point of idolatry is when that joy turns from a life-giving tool and gift from God to to a tool by the enemy to steal from us. And this is why the Bible is so emphatic about joy. Because God knows that our joy sensor is broken. It's broken. We are far too easily pleased. Our compass doesn't point to true north. Our GPS has a bad reading. And we often can't discern uh, the, 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 the place in our hearts where the truer, deeper, sustaining joy comes from. And so we begin to look for joy in all the wrong places. Which is why you have David and Paul who are constantly pleading with themselves and with their churches and with others to rejoice. But not just in a sunset, but in something that will sustain and will abide. Something that will hold as an anchor when it becomes impossible to see the sunset or to taste the goodness of the food or to feel the love. When the darkness settles, you need to make sure that your joy sensor is finely tuned to the appropriate source. Because in those moments and in those seasons, you will not be able to rely on those things that once seemed so abundant and now seem so elusive. The laughter and the gladness will be hard to find. And you will need something that will sustain you. Which is why the Bible commands us to rejoice so often. It's like a beacon calling you back to the source. The closer you get to it, the louder the signal gets. And the Bible is continuing.
continually pinging, saying, come this way, come this way, come this way, come this way. And you're trying to figure out where, where is it that I need to go to find this? And it's just saying, come this way. Y'all played the game Marco Polo in the pool? You know how that one works? Frustrating game. You play that game Marco Polo, and, and the object is, which by the way, it's like my favorite Geico commercial, the one with Marco Polo, if you've seen that one. That, that's a great one. But you got one person who closes their eyes, cries out Marco, and then everyone else is supposed to yell Polo. And the idea is that you are trying to hide, if you are the, 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 the person saying Polo, you're trying to hide while making yourself known, Right? So you're, you're trying to like throw your voice, even though you have no idea how to do that. You're trying to uh, pretend that you're over here when you're actually over here. Somebody says, Marco, and you whisper, Polo, if you're really close. And if you're over here, you'll like scream it because you know they're not going to swim fast enough to get you. And so you say Polo, and then you swim over here and you move. That game is a good game, and it's fun if you have a lot of people. But if you've got one like little kid who's just playing with you and they're a terrible seeker, it is a frustrating game to play. If you've got a bad seeker, that game can go on forever. That's kind of how life is. We walk around in our life crying out, Marco, and then we hear over here a faint polo just kind of on the other end of the, the pool. And sometimes it's, it's on the other side of a new relationship. And sometimes it's on the other side of a new car. And sometimes it's on the other side of a, of a four-year uh, degree. And sometimes it's on the other side of, of a new job. And we start swimming as fast as we can because we heard polo over here somewhere. And we, we go as fast as we can. And sometimes we, we, we catch up to that thing and we experience some level of joy, but oftentimes when we get there, we find that that happiness has moved. That that thing calling out polo to us isn't there anymore. And we're reaching and we're grabbing with our eyes closed in the dark and we're saying, wait a minute, this is where the happiness was supposed to be. Why aren't you here now? And so then we cry out Marco again and then we hear a faint polo over here and we swim as hard as we can and we use all of our energy pursuing this thing and maybe it's a new relationship over there because you got tired of the old relationship or, or maybe it's a, a new job over there or a check or whatever. Then we get over there and it's gone again. And we play this game over and over and over for our entire lives. And we get so frustrated, chasing a joy that is fleeting and almost impossible to catch. Some of us play this game our whole lives. Some of us just give up. We start screaming, fish out of water! And we open our eyes to see what in the world's going on and who's cheating us and who's working against us. And we start to think, you know what, I just can't be happy. I'll never catch any of these things. I'm just not made for that. Maybe that's true. Maybe you need to get a doctor that will help you along. But a lot of you aren't happy because you're swimming in circles. Or you just plain quit. But the Bible has a better option for you. It has a better truth for you. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That sounds a lot different than, Marco, where, where do I go? By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus says that he is telling us these things that our joy might be full. He's telling us where he is in the pool. He's telling us where to go. And what does he tell us? He says, abide in him and follow his commands. What is his command? He says it is to love one another as he has loved us. And how did he love us? He laid down his life for us. If you want to find joy, he just gave you the roadmap. A joy that is full. In the life of Jesus, he showed us that you find joy by laying down your life for another. And he did so by dying on the cross for us. In that dark, painful truth, we find our source of joy. And why is that? Because his love is on display for us on that cross. No matter how bad or how painful life is, this is the source of our joy. This is what can sustain us even in the darkest moments. And then what is our response to this love and this life that he gave for us? That we too would love as he loved us, willing to lay down our lives too. And here's the thing, the world tells us that sacrifice is the path of the weak and it comes at the expense of happiness. God tells us that is wrong. Listen to this quote from author John Bloom. He says, when God commands us to love him with all we are or to love others, he is not commanding us to sacrifice real, lasting, true, satisfying happiness. He is commanding us to pursue our real, lasting, true, satisfying happiness. And what the world tells us will cost us happiness, God says this is the path to happiness. One chapter after this, Jesus tells us what it looks like to pursue joy. And then he makes us this promise. He tells his disciples that even in the face of pain and sorrow, something greater is coming. The Spirit is coming. And when the Spirit takes root, sorrow no longer reigns. John chapter 16 Verse 22, Jesus says, See also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. No one can take your joy. No one, Christian. No one. Now, does that mean that your joy sensor is, is fixed? Not completely. Not yet but it's at least beginning to get tuned to the right frequency. Romans 15, 13 says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The fruit of the Spirit, joy. Born out by the life of the Spirit, abounding in hope. That is the promise of the gospel. And that sustains even in the darkest days. Abounding in hope. Over and over and over again, I could read verses like this in Scripture. 
It's all, I told you, it's the most commanded command in Scripture to rejoice. The Bible is just constantly calling us to joy, constantly calling us to this. It's the, it's the, the most frequent refrain in Scripture. Why? Because God loves us that much to remind us that we are not just given and granted forgiveness from sin if that weren't enough, but to joy. And the Bible's nonstop refrain in commanding us to rejoice is not meant to heap condemnation and serve as a boulder on our shoulders, weighing us down and condemning us, but is meant to be a beacon that is beckoning us. It's as if we're playing that game of Marco Polo, but now we have the spirit that's just crying out, I'm right here, I'm right here, I'm right here. And we keep yelling, Marco, and he's like, I'm right here. Just open your eyes and look, I'm right here. You don't have to find me. You don't have to seek in the dark. You don't have to swim hard for this other thing to find the joy. I'm right here. And then as soon as we're like, I just can't figure it out, he's like, I'm right here. You don't even have to call out Marco. It's just over and over and over in Scripture. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Rejoice in the Spirit. Rejoice in the Lord. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It's just over and over and over. And the Spirit is saying, I'm right here. You don't have to seek me out. You don't have to look for me. I'm not going anywhere. I'm right here. What a God we serve that he would do that for us. And it is there for you. That joy is there. He's saying, I'm right here. Quit looking over here. Quit looking in in perfect physical health. Quit looking in, in, in this next relationship. Quit looking in this next bottle or this next meal. All of those things may have some sort of joy for you, but if you want joy that lasts, I'm right here. Quit swimming all over the pool. I'm right here. Don't give up. I'm right here. That's the joy that we have right in front of us. And the Bible is beckoning us, come and have joy and have it to the full. He's calling your name and he's saying, come to me, come to me, come to me. And if you want joy, then come to him. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, what a promise that is. What a What a joy that is to know that we don't have to seek and we don't have to feel in the dark. But that we can know you. That we can abide in you and your spirit will then abide in us. That we don't have to swim with our eyes closed hoping to find some distant promise of joy on the other side of some other miraculous effort, but instead... You're right there in front of us saying, come to me, come to me. Father, give us the the eyes and the ears to hear this. Father, sustain us in the midst of trials. Father, for those in here that have a darkness on their hearts, a darkness on their minds, and they just can't seem to grasp any sense of joy, Father, I pray that their ears would hear you crying loud this morning through your word and through your spirit saying, come to me. And Father, I pray that maybe for the first time someone would respond to that call and that they would know a joy they have never known before. And that we could know that there is rejoicing in heaven over that. When one of your children comes home. Father, help us to know joy. 
know it to the full. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.